This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 334, March the 3rd, 1995. Our subject this hour will be Romanticism. Now, Romanticism can be approached from a variety of directions. In the field of literature, Romanticism has been very, very influential and powerful. It began with men uh, to take the leaders of the movement, like Wordsworth and Coleridge, Keats and Shelley, and it ended up in a kind of uh, occultist, pornographic uh, worldview. It can be taken also from the political standpoint. Romanticism and revolution have been closely linked because Romanticism held that all you had to do was to sweep away the old past, bring in the new, and the world would be born again, and that only uh, a mass destruction was necessary in order to usher in utopia. And not only in the French Revolution, but in the Russian Revolution and in other upheavals, the belief has been all they have to do is to kill off those in power and everything is going to be uh, sweetness and light. We can approach Romanticism from a number of other ways as well. However, perhaps a simple approach and a simple definition is that Romanticism stressed as the key factor in man's life, not reason, but feeling, emotions. As a result, it believed that uh, instead of thinking, you had to feel. It led immediately to the avant-garde artist who broke all the rules and stressed his passion, his feelings. It meant, as in Wordsworth, that uh, he viewed the child, therefore, as most important because the child didn't think and therefore didn't uh, cover up his innermost inspirational feelings with uh, rationalizations so that a child with his pure feelings represented the greatest good under the sun and the noblest feeling. This kind of thinking has led in our day to the exaltation of the child. The child-centered society, as one book uh, described it, and to believe that somehow the child has an instinctive wisdom. Last week I saw a bumper sticker. I hope I do not see many more. <laughs> that read simply, Believe the children. Believe the children. Why? Well, because the children don't think. 
they haven't been corrupted yet by schools and by the church and by the parents. So believe the children. And of course today, it's a very serious offense to not only spank a child, but to send a child to bed without supper or to speak harshly to a child and so on and on because the child increasingly is so important. We have had for some time a child-centered society. I hope we're moving out of it. I don't know. But if pure, unadulterated feelings, unmediated by any thinking or any experience or any religious faith are what must determine man and society, then you have the romantic movement in its clearest expression. I've just cited one particular expression that I find find particularly reprehensible, but there are many other expressions of it. Well, I think it would be fair to say that Romanticism is the genesis of a New Age movement that we have around us today because they operate totally on feeling. Um, the uh, you know the Russians tried taking the kids away from the parents and turning them into mindless robots. And our, the concept of our uh, state is that the parents are simply, uh, they're simply caretakers. You know, the parents are to pay the bills and, uh, uh, but not to provide any, uh, tutoring, uh, no, uh, no moral, uh, direction, uh, no education, uh, no, uh, correcting their behavior. Uh, you're simply a caretaker. And that if you exercise, if you would, uh, nowadays, if you attempt to exercise any control, uh, they'll put you in jail. Yes. I mean, there are extreme cases like the one here in the last day or so where some woman who obviously had lost it, you know, tortured her kids by putting their feet in the hot water in the bathtub. But that's at one end of the spectrum. But on the other end of the spectrum, if a mother spanks her kid in the store because he's uh, tries to steal a candy bar or is making uh, disturbing the the rest of the shoppers in the store, she can be put in jail for that. And yes, is yes. currently is for that sort of thing. More than once, several times in the past couple of years, I've been on a plane and a woman across the aisle has got a screaming child. And she is helpless. She dare not do anything because she could be arrested when the plane lands. And uh, I, on a couple of occasions, tried to smile at the mother to reassure her because she was profoundly embarrassed that uh, I understood. I, I wasn't happy about the child screaming, of course, but I didn't want her to feel as guilty as she obviously felt. And she just made a gesture to indicate she was helpless. She did not dare do anything. 
And that's our situation. How did we get to that position? I mean, this has happened very quickly. I mean, it's happened within my lifetime, and that's pretty quick. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we need to recognize how wide-ranging was this problem of romanticism, which affected music and architecture and uh, literature painting, criticism, historiography, all those things. Um, Rush mentioned some of the marks of Romanticism. Uh, return to nature, pantheism, subjectivism, the exaltation of the individual, the self, obsession with the hero or the exceptional figure, the deprecation of reason, the exaltation of emotion. Uh, Rush mentioned, of course, the worship of the child, the artist as a creator, in the classical period and earlier, for the most part, the painters and other artists wanted to depict nature and reality as it was, but the Romantics believed that uh, out of his own bosom that the artist could create uh, and thus ape or imitate God. And then the imagination is the gateway to the spiritual world, and then Satanism and the bizarre, Mary Shelley, of course, and Frankenstein and Bram Stoker, Dracula, and all that sort of thing, William Blake uh, and all that. You know, I was thinking, though, what we're talking about is the practical effects of romanticism in modern culture. I want to read just a couple of sentences from a powerful book, Robert Pattison's The Triumph of Vulgarity, Rock Music in the Mirror of Romanticism. He says, Romanticism is a living, popular creed, not a superannuated artistic movement. This creed, originally the province of an educated minority, is by now... The mutation, I'm sorry, is now by mutation the ideological currency of the Western masses. We are so engulfed in romanticism today that we don't understand. The whole idea of the worship of feeling and in Star Wars, uh, don't think, Luke, you know, trust the force, trust your feelings. I'm, this is coming from my heart and not my head. This has become just so prominent, especially in our music, as Pattison has pointed, uh, pointed out. It is just almost utterly feeling-oriented, and almost all of life is that way. And I don't think we should escape tonight without talking about the uh, extent to which Romanticism has emasculated the Church. Yes. Uh, But to go back to children and young people, one of the things I see as I travel... uh, very commonly among... Boys from very fine families, Christian families, wearing uh, caps with the uh, visor turned to the back to give no shade, or haircuts with uh, an odd type of cut. Where do these come from? Why, right out of the city gangs. That's right. And... They're imitated by children from good families because they represent wildness. Well, that's coming from MTV. That's how the message is conveyed, is MTV. Uh, The styles, the dress styles of the urban inner city uh, ghetto youth, the language, the music, the rap music, uh, uh, the vulgarity, uh, that's how it's conveyed. That's the conduit by which the the uh, uh, all of these things from the inner city are are uh, transmitted out to the youth through the rest of the country. It's it's their pipeline. It's the, it's their bulletin board system. 
And, and one reason for this rise of sexual immorality and the promiscuity of the 60s was this very romantic idea. Just trust your feelings. Don't trust your reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the chief ideas of romanticism is let's break out of traditional rules and strictures. And so you're sort of your own boss, your own god. Go with the flow. If it feels good, do if it. it. That's a, that is one maxim of romanticism. If it feels good, do it. Yeah. And... Uh, I, I, I can hardly overemphasize the extent to which romanticism has so engulfed modern society. Yes. Well, you mentioned about the church. Uh, so much theology today is based on the emotions following romanticism. Uh, it's, you know, what, how Jesus makes me feel and how this part of scripture is so precious to me. Yes. And, uh, or a Bible study will be based upon um, what does this scripture say to you? Yes. And it's all subjective, it's all personal, it's all a consumer religion Yes. Uh, that serves you. And if you talk of theology, if you talk about biblical mandates, then you're accused of having just head knowledge and no feeling, yes. no heart in your religion. And uh, it's it's really repulsive that how contemptuous uh, so much of the modern church has become of, of theology, yes. of, of scripture. It's all a subjective personal religion. Well, they've degenerated into uh, uh, showtime. I mean, it's uh, their entertainment, entertainment yes. centers. A good example of how that's sometimes this subjectivism sometimes comes out. I In a Bible study... I was in a Bible study uh, once where uh, the leader would read what, here's what my Bible says. (laughs) Now, how many different translations do we have here? How many different versions or paraphrases? And everybody would read theirs. And some people would say, well, I like that one. Yeah, uh, smorgasbord. And that's, that's one of the problems with having... A church with various Surprise translations they where they have there, there's, there's no absolute because this one seems to say this and this one seems to say that I prefer this one. I'm surprised yes. they don't form them up into groups depending on which translation they brought with them. Yeah, Mark, you mentioned these people who talk about this or that precious scripture reading, and I've heard that type of reference on radio programs. And I have wondered, don't they realize that maybe God is going to say more to them and what is not precious to them? <laughs> yeah. Well, people don't want any bad news. Let's face it. You might just find something you've been doing something wrong. <laughs> it's like the uh, man who... Uh, was helpful in getting a pastor kicked out of his pulpit on the grounds that he had preached a sermon on uh, Leviticus 18, the Chronicle of Sexual Sins, of which this man was guilty, and he knew the pastor would never violate the knowledge he had through bringing this man to a point of confession. And he said... It's a terrible thing when you can't come to church without hearing something 
that is anything with comforting. We come to the house of God to be comforted, and so on and on. Well, if ever a man needed anything but comforting, it was that man. That's right. <laughs> Romanticism in the church is, of course, largely pervasive in the modern charismatic movement, though elsewhere also I think of two prominent examples. One is the so-called prophetic movement where individual leaders sort of get immediate revelations from God. That is right in line with romantic ideal of creation and the idea of sense experience and their epistemology, the immediate impressions on the soul and truth being impressed on me, but also this nonsensical laughing revival which is sweeping the country, the Toronto blessing. This is only the most extreme, or one of the most extreme examples of uh, romanticism and the worship of feeling. Well, not too many years ago, a prominent uh, person in the Pentecostal movement who was very successful, became so confirmed in feeling his feelings to be from God that he finally began to speak as the voice of Christ. And of course, that was enough to expose him. And happily, the roof fell in on him. But that kind of thing does go on. Yes. And I know of a couple of instances today where people by trusting their feelings have begun to believe that they have revelations that put them on a level with Christ. Yes, you know, somebody alluded to this, Rush Mark, it may have been you, I can't remember, but so frequently do we hear, and not even among liberal churches, but especially among evangelicals, this idea that, well, the problem with you Chalcedon people and others that stand for tr- truth with cognitive content is you have head religion, yeah. and we need today heart religion. Well, that's just straight out of the romantic playbook. And originally out of Greek pagan thinking. Yes, exactly. And, of course, when they say heart, they don't understand what the Bible means by that term, which is the whole of the immaterial man, the, the essence or the pith of man. They don't understand that. And thus they go away from the truth. For them, heart is just their emotions. And yes. if we cry, you know, that somehow validates what happens. And uniformly, they tend to despise the creeds and confessions yes. of the church and often go into heresy. I'm thinking of one man right now that can wax eloquent about getting revelations from God and yet is not even Trinitarian. He's a modalist. Uh, it's so easy to do that mm-hmm. when you rely on your feelings or emotions or intuitions. But this really is a description of the evangelical church today. Yes. Good example of this uh, subjective attitude of the emotions and how uh, Christianity should should feed our uh, our inner needs and our feelings is this holy laughter movement. Yes. And people, how how that appeals to so many people. Yeah. The whole concept that that I should go to church to learn how to laugh have a good time it's sweeping the sweeping the country and uh, it's just inconceivable but the groundwork is laid in this romantic view of not only society but also the church that must be resisted at all costs when you think about it it's really is kind of an offshoot of faith healing because yes. uh, scientists supposedly say that laughter is good for you it generates something that you need yes and uh, but you could do the same thing with nitrous oxide while you're driving along in your car. 
Yeah. I didn't fully understand um, how charismatics could become so involved in believing in this um, faith healing, being slain in the spirit and so forth till uh, we were at the state fair a year or two ago. And as part of the uh, mass entertainment there, in the, uh, they had a pavilion with a stage, they had various entertainers, jugglers. Well, one of the entertainers was a hypnotist. And he would ask for about 20 or 25 volunteers from the audience. And these were all people who wanted to go up, some of who had seen his previous show, and they, they, were, they showed up early because they wanted to go up on stage. They wanted to be hypnotized. So what did he do? He said something, and he touched them, and if they did what he said, fell asleep or you know, just lost control and sank down to the ground, and he went down the line. And the ones who were the most susceptible, he said, I'd like the rest of you to go back into the audience. Thank you very much. And the ones who wanted to be hypnotized and were so susceptible of it, sure, all he had to do was touch them. Mm-hmm. And boy, yeah. he had control over them because they wanted, they wanted to believe That's in what he was going to do. And so he had power over them. Mm-hmm. Which indicates that probably in the church, too, that there's an element of yeah. self-deception. Oh, very much so. Self-deception. People want to be deceived. Well, what has happened in the churches is that as a result of Romanticism, the church, instead of proclaiming the word of God to the people, proclaims whatever in the word the people would like, and with changes and emphases to please the people. So we do not have worshiping churches. We have consumer churches. Yes. The people go there as consumers. Yeah. And they shop around. Yeah. They go in as shoppers, and if the uh, pastor does not please them and his preaching does not suit them, they go where they can get what they want. Yes. And the consumer church is the curse of the world today. Yes. It has completely abandoned Christianity for a romantic version of Christianity. Yes, and their attitude is, what can this church do for me? Yes. Not, how can I hear the word of God and obey the word of God and train my family in a godly way and exercise godly dominion? And if, in some churches, I'm thinking of another church right now, a rather large evangelical church. Uh, in fact, there's a whole new vocabulary that has been developed. Uh, preaching to meet felt needs. Yes. Which means that basically what the worshipers want, what the Christians want, is what we will preach on. Not the idea of, as the reformers would do, just go through the word of God and expound the word of God week after week after week. We have to meet felt needs, and they talk about seeker-sensitive churches. You know, it almost sounds like a missile or something that they're talking about. I'm telling you, a whole new psychological vocabulary to deal with this romantic impulse. And this is the final utter democratization of the church. And so many young men go into the ministry and they think they're going to serve God and they find very quickly the people will not tolerate it. They want their needs met. Yes. A very fine pastor I know had to leave a church because they were angry with him. He was preaching the word of God faithfully. And what they wanted was uh, we are interested in having the needs of the retired people, the young couples, college age, uh, and so on. All these needs had to be met. 
Yes. Is this is this a new phenomenon in religion? Something yes. that's happened within the past century? Yes. Yes. Uh, it began with the Enlightenment. In the last century and a half, it has gained momentum, and uh, you have churches now that self-consciously uh, not only work to please the people, but boast of it. Yes. I think I mentioned on an earlier Easy Chair that I know of a church in which periodically, this is hard to believe, but this is true, little slips of paper are handed out to the congregation after the sermon, and the minister is graded on the sermon. And, of course, if he doesn't meet up to expectations, there are a number of ministers in the church, it's a large church, he has to sort of revise his message in terms of what the congregation likes. I can't think of any more abominable idea of, of romanticism and democracy in the church than that. Yes. It's no wonder that uh, the young men who go into the ministry very quickly uh, have a very real crisis. They're not fully aware of what's happening, but this is not what they felt called to do. This is a technique that uh, people who, uh, professional, who conduct seminars, you know, have people grade them. Yes. Uh, so that they can find out. But it's not a, it's not a fit thing for a church. I think uh, in their zeal to please the audience to be consumer oriented as Rush uh, has pointed out that they borrowed a lot of these techniques that they've seen used by business organizations and uh, uh, used in, in uh, modern day seminars and uh, teaching techniques yes. and tried to transfer it to the church where it has no valid place yes and we should mention that this is almost completely unprecedented in the history of the church. There were some mystical, anabaptistic, radical reformation elements that bore some resemblance to this. But on the whole, whether in Eastern Orthodoxy, whether in Romanism or Protestantism, all of those groups have their defects and problems. But at least in all of them, historically, until the modern era, there was a recognition that truth is objective and the responsibility of the minister, priest, whoever may be, is to declare the truth. But that has largely been eroded in uh, the last 50 years or so under the romantic impulse. Well, this is one reason why the Reformed faith has waned yes. with the rise of romanticism. Yes. And what must be done is to build a fresh kind of church with a different kind of membership. Yes. One that recognizes the authority of the Word of God and is ready to be changed rather than to try to make the church conform to its romantic needs. Yes. And I want to encourage, as a former pastor myself, any pastors listening to these tapes, don't be afraid. Speak lovingly, but don't be afraid to speak the truth. Don't be afraid to affirm the good old doctrines of the Reformed faith, which is nothing more, as Warfield said, than Christianity coming to its own, to declare the truth and not worry about the needs of the congregation. I mean, the congregation needs the declaration of the Word of God, 
is the want. Well, we see this in every sphere. The superficial aspects are given priority in making judgments. It's been observed, and uh, it's worth repeating, that if Abraham Lincoln were living today, he couldn't be elected a dog catcher. Yes. First, he had a high-pitched voice, and they would have laughed him off the stage in any district of the United States, because it was not a voice that was uh, uh, the right kind of voice to come out of a big giant of a man. Second, he was a sloppy person. He really was. His wife had a continual problem with him trying to keep him neat and clean. Uh, One point after another, Lincoln didn't have what it takes to be a 20th century politician. But when you read him, whether you agree with his speeches or not, you have to say this was on a higher level intellectually than anything we have today. And he was campaigning in Illinois in what was almost frontier territory. So that uh, you have to say those uh, Illinois frontiersmen had a high level of intellectual aptitude. Yes. Well, no politician has the intellectual caliber or content of Lincoln, and the pulpit today has similarly declined from the pulpit of that day. Yes. I'd like to uh, jump over to another area, literature. James Joyce is very, very important in the literature of this century. He is the epitome of the romantic because his writing is stream of consciousness writing. It is not organized. It doesn't deal with a narrative. It puts you in the mind of the people in his novel, for example, Ulysses, what they are thinking. And uh, it will be pornographic, it will be scatological, it supposedly represents uh, the thought of these uh, protagonists, whatever they're doing, whether they're sitting on the pot or they are uh, lusting after somebody or meditating about something. The idea is let it all hang out. Isn't it Freudian self-analysis disguised as literature? Yes. Well, even Nora, Joyce's wife, uh, who was not a particularly moral person, once said uh, of her husband, Sure, the man is a genius but it is a dirty mind he has. (laughs) And she should have known. Let it all hang out. That was the premise. And ever since then, 
literature has followed that course. And today, whether it's on uh, television for popular consumption or in the movies or in literature, vulgarity, to refer to the book you cited, Andrew, is exalted. Yes. It is regarded as somehow the higher truth. Yes. The real reality, not the... uh, intellectual reality or the religious reality. So we live in an era of unabated reality. Vulgarity. Uh, yes. In high school we were forced or we were assigned James Joyce to read and we had to write down comments about what we thought about it and I, <laughs> I thought it was garbage and the teacher was just horrified interesting I've read some of his letters collected letters to his wife and had to throw them down in disgust they were just filled with uh, perversion sadomasochism and all sorts of other things like that but you're right that it has greatly influenced modern culture there's also an infatuation and this is truly romantic with the bizarre mm-hmm. want to push the limits and to shock people we yes. want to to get involved in such new perversions or such new tortures or such new techniques of destruction that we can uh, shock people. This is also the romantic ideal. The Henry when, Mill- uh, Millers and <clears throat> the Faulkners and the uh, yeah. all the rest of these spawned a whole generation of them. Yes. When uh, James Joyce's Ulysses was tried in court here in the United States, The judge's decision was an interesting one because he ruled that it did not stimulate to lust. It rather had an emetic uh, (laughs) reaction he wanted to throw up. (laughs) (laughs) We need to find some more judges that can state that clearly. But they proudly put his decision Mm -hmm. in as the foreword to the book. Oh yes, mm. and you can get it today. That's right. Yeah. Badge of courage. Maybe we can shift gears and talk about the theme of the book that I cited, and that is romanticism in music. Of course, there were the pre-romantics like Beethoven and Schubert and Franz Liszt and Tchaikovsky, but today it's degenerated to such an extent that music is almost nothing but pure feeling and pure emotion. And of course, good music always does have a subordinate element of feeling, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we're talking now about the apotheosis of feeling, and uh, music has today just degenerated back essentially to, it's been called jungle music, and that's Mm -hmm. really the truth. You know, it's interesting what Patterson points out in the book, The Triumph of Vulgarity, is he cites statements by rock and roll musicians, writers, and so forth, that this is a religious experience, they are declaring their religion. This really is their religion, their faith, that they are creators as God is, and they are breaking out of all bounds and thus demonstrating that they are the creators. Well, because those of my generation, and I will shortly be 79, have a more disciplined background, it's totally impossible for us to listen to rock and roll. We simply are not capable of reacting mindlessly uh, as you have to. Yes. 
but to the generation schooled in the public schools, rock and roll has an intense and absorbing uh, character to it. Yes. The beat. Yes, and has a hypnotic effect. Yes. And, and uh, Patterson was citing rock and rollers who were claiming that we all recognize this is animalistic music. It emphasizes the basis inst uh, instincts in man. And they're glorying in that. Mm -hmm. They're not uh, complaining about it. They're glorying in that, and they're conceding that very point. Uh, and I think that's another example of the success of Romanticism in modern culture. Well, modern music today, it's, it's very consumer-oriented because it's very, and it's very geared towards a particular generation. Yes, that's right. So there's a generation of the, of the 50s um, when rock and roll developed. The music was very different in the early 60s and the late 60s and the 70s and 80s. And it's, it's changed quite a bit since then. And now you have the, the, the rap and, and the other MTV, the, the video stuff. And music changes so much because a new generation wants something different. And the old stuff becomes... Outdated, yeah. or say, and it's only round along long enough until while while there's still people who remember it as what they would listen to and became exactly. accustomed to, and then it's going to be completely thrown out. That's exactly well, right. television tells us a great deal about the change that has taken place. Not too many years ago, the most popular and the all-time most popular. Uh, television program, according to many of the authorities in the field, was Dragnet. Now, Dragnet was a police show dealing with actual cases. It rarely showed a gun pulled or used, no wild chases, just solid detective works. And at the end, it showed the arrest and the conviction of the person. And that was intensely popular with a generation that now is over the hill. But what happened was that as the new generation grew up and they were more governed by this romantic, mindless, emotional reaction, uh, television recognized that uh, they because they reacted more emotionally, were more susceptible to advertising. Yes. So that more and more of the shows were geared to these younger people, even though they might not draw as big an audience as the traditional kind of television show would. But they would spend more money and the advertisers would be more ready to advertise. Yes. Now, one show that uh, suffered because of it, not one that I liked or found very interesting, was, uh, what was his name, the champagne music? Lawrence Man. Welk. Lawrence Welk, yes. Lawrence Welk drew the older audiences. Well, the older audiences didn't spend money like the others. And the kind of commercials you got were for Geritol and the like. <laughs> so they dropped Lawrence Welk, and he had to go uh, independent in order to get on TV. 
and they went for things that did not draw as many people as Lawrence Welk. They drew young people, but they drew more advertising. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting what public television does, you know, because of all the talk about cutting public television funds. Uh, there's been some dramatic <laughs> changes in programming. They've got suddenly Lawrence Welk is on Channel 6. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, so that they can blunt the criticism of mm-hmm. not serving the older members yeah. of society. Then uh, to blunt the criticism that they're not uh, providing uh, equal time for conservatives, why they put uh, William F. Buckley on at about 2 o'clock in the morning when yeah. nobody's watching. Yeah. Rush, you were talking earlier about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I want to mention uh, Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He demonstrates the great transformation a modern society, in modern society, from a word or a verbal oriented mm-hmm. to a visual oriented yes. culture. He gives a number of examples, and one is Lincoln and the Lincoln Douglas debates. Compare the transcripts yes. of the Lincoln Douglas debates to these insubstantial little debates that we have today. Yes. There is just absolutely uh, no comparison. Well, the, those men had credibility. I mean, these men today have zero credibility. Right. Well, the important thing for them, they can be successful if they set forth a good image. The important thing is not the substance. It's the projected image. I mean, today nobody cares what these people say because they know it's a lie. They know that it's subject to reinterpretation and a total 180-degree about-face within minutes, if not hours. Yeah. A hundred years ago, in the 1890s, the average American read three to four hours a day. In the 1990s, the average American watches television three to four hours a day. And the difference is dramatic in the culture it produces. Yes. At that time, also a great deal of reading aloud was done in the family. Well, nowadays, uh, marketing organizations uh, don't even send you uh, written literature, uh, printed literature anymore. They send you a videotape if they want to sell you something because they figure that uh, apparently they're convinced that the the, uh, literacy level is so low that if they're going to convey anything to people, it's got to be done visually. Yeah, well, that's interesting because that has been a problem to me. Douglas, I belong to the Depression generation. You don't throw things away lightly. And these videotapes come. I don't want to listen to them. I don't. I put them there and they stay there and they stay there a long, long time until finally, for lack of space, I figure, well, they'll have to go to the... By now, uh, the information's obsolete anyway, so you let yourself off the hook. And even when literature comes through, the uh, promotional mm-hmm. literature, it's largely mm-hmm. just colors, you know, a few colors and mm-hmm. a couple of words here. It's basically the same effect. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, too, about the effect of romanticism in education. We think immediately about this Goals 2000, which wants to subordinate the hard cognitive subject to relationalism and feeling and, quote, uh, socialistic values, they say. Uh, well, that is another aspect of romanticism in modern culture that... These cognitive, like hard math subjects or language, uh, literature, history, I mean genuine American or world history, these things tend to be subordinated to uh, sort of good feelings, relationships, getting along with one another in school. That too is an is a aspect of romanticism. I have 
sitting right out in plain sight right now. A video sent by someone who is a Christian of sorts and a conservative of sorts. And I don't know what to do with it. I'm never going to listen to it. I don't think much of the man. And it pains me to throw it away. Eventually I will, but... Well, you, I mean, know, you can't you, tape over you can things, you know. Yeah, you can use it, you know, record over the uh, top of it. Uh, I don't do any recording. Well, romanticism is very much with us. And one of the manifestations that we've only barely referred to is occultism and offbeat religions. Yeah. And the Romantic movement created an interest in Eastern religions and in uh, uh, spiritualism and a great many other phenomena. There is an actress, what is her name? Shirley MacLaine. What? Shirley MacLaine. Shirley MacLaine. Now, she represents uh, very clearly this Romantic mood and temperament because she's constantly pursuing visionary experiences and ready to believe almost anything that anybody uh, passes on to her. Yes. And the number of important people who are involved in this kind of thing is legion. We know that not too many years ago, a president's wife, Nancy Reagan, was involved in this. Mm. And there have been hints that uh, many another uh, person in the White House has been involved in occultism, but they have not publicized it. Yes. Well, Romanticism does not believe in verification, in proof, in evidence. Such ideas are too rationalistic. They want the immediate, the unadulterated experience. So they're ready to believe that uh, if they have had a very vivid dream or a very vivid reaction, God or the spirits have spoken to them or that it represents an experience uh, from a previous reincarnation. The gullibility of people who are in important positions to this sort of thing is staggering. Well, the thing I object to is if they pay for it with my money. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So romanticism is something we encounter everywhere. And it's been linked to the philosophical idea of existentialism, uh, according to which the important thing is the the moment, this particular point in time, what I feel at this moment. A noted, in fact, perhaps the most prominent English scholar in the United States was queried recently about his beliefs, and he said, oh, my beliefs may be different, uh, my basic beliefs may be different two hours from now. Completely different. He says, just... Just what I believe right now is important. Of course, that's a frightening statement. Sounds like a description of Bill Clinton. <laughs> yes. That's true. They've been after him since he 
first ran for the office uh, trying to find out what his, quote, core beliefs are. And he has a different set of core, core beliefs, beliefs that from, he doesn't from have moment any. to moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Reader's Digest, I believe, currently has an article about Clinton in which they call him a yo-yo because his ideas change so frequently. But what the writer of the article, and it's a very good article, misses is that this doesn't bother tens of millions of people because if you are a good existentialist and most of the people without knowing the meaning of the word are today existentialists. You're not bound by what you said two days ago. You are governed only by your feelings of the moment and the truth of the moment. So Clinton is very much an existentialist. He manifests this readiness to change and to believe that whatever he says at the moment is the truth for the moment. And that's existentialism. I don't know how you can practice such self-delusion without going crazy. Well, I mean, how, how can you maintain a grip on reality if you delude yourself? Well, but there is no reality other than yourself if you're an existentialist. Self-induced insanity. Yes, it is. Yes. It is. Well, why don't we talk about how to combat this romantic element in the church and in society and so forth. I think what you say that in the church we need to get back to the idea of sound expository preaching the authority of the Word of God, all of the Word of God, Old and New Testaments, uh, subordinate authority of the creeds and confessions of the Church, the Orthodox creeds and confessions of the Church. I think that's a good starting place for the Church, but Rash, go ahead. Yes, and I feel more than ever in this age because the kind of preaching the people like is so thin, Ministers should give themselves to a systematic exposition of Scripture. Yes. Maybe a book beginning in the New Testament with Matthew, straight through, week after week, in the evening, maybe start with Genesis, so that they get a systematic presentation of the Word of God. I think they need to sit down with uh, the church officers and explain why this is necessary. Yes the number of church members who cannot tell you the what it is they believe more than vaguely that they believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior is legion. And yes. these are from churches that are militant Arminian churches and militant Reformed churches, but it's mindless at the same time. Yes. There is no systematic knowledge of Scripture. That's right. One of the uh, great Reformed preachers of this generation, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, would spend as long as perhaps ten years in one book of the Bible. And while some may consider that excessive, that is certainly preferable to this sort of topical hit-and-miss preaching that is so prominent today in uh, evangelical churches. Uh, the whole counsel of God is not preached when all no. of the Word of God is not preached. No. And that makes for a defective congregation. Mm -hmm. It's like not getting a full diet. Yes. You tend to be deficient in one particular area or several particular areas, and that's why one reason the church is so deficient. And much of it, of course, is not sound preaching from the Old Testament. Or if it is Old Testament preaching, it's only very typological or allegorical or something like that. 
The way it's going, a lot of these churches could shut down and just get a 900 number. You know, you that's true. Call in on Sunday morning yeah. and get your message for the day. Get just as much. That's right. Get it in condensed form. Right. Yes. In wider culture and fighting romanticism, I think, Russ, you were talking about politics. I think we need fewer politicians and more statesmen. Mm-hmm. Christian statesmen who will stand yes. up, governed by principle, by the word of God, the law of God, and to declare the truth. And I think immediately of men like Howard Phillips, and there are more and more that are uh, coming up uh, through the ranks. And I've met some of them, and uh, they're they're good men. And we need to need to stress that idea. I get the feeling that there are millions of what I would call religious vagabonds out there who just bounce around from one place to the next and nothing sounds good to them or makes any sense to them because there's no cohesiveness, no continuity. Uh, It's really, it's really uh, the the modern church is impeding stretching out the period of time before we can achieve a revival. That's right. Some years ago, I read through the many volumes of Richardson's presidential papers to, I believe, uh, I believe through Wilson. I didn't read everything if it were an appropriations uh, measure in his veto of it or something that was technical I just glanced at it and skipped over it but I read them and I also read the uh, papers of Fisher Ames who was in the first U.S. Congress and uh, read most of the collected papers of Abraham Lincoln And what was very clear was that we have had a steady downward trend in the content of presidential papers. It has gotten thinner and thinner because the caliber of the people has become thinner and thinner. It has reached a point where It is depressing because there is an insufficient grasp of issues. I don't believe we're going to get back to uh, better content without a Christian renewal. And I think it's coming. The Christian and homeschool movement are creating better audiences, better voters. And in another 20 years or so, we will see the impact of Christian schools and homeschools. At the same time, we're seeing a return to an awareness that as Christians, we've got to apply the faith. Yes. So it's both a a sense of responsibility plus better equipment. I think what we represent in Chalcedon and the Christian Reconstruction Movement is an aspect of this great change that is beginning to take place. Our time is almost over. Is there a last statement each of you would like to make? 
I would say that to all of those who are listening, acquaint yourselves with the history of Romanticism, and uh, I can assure you that you have been influenced by it more than you think. It should be resisted, it is anti-Christian to the core, and it is utterly destructive of the church, the family, and society. Edu educate yourself about this pernicious movement. I think at the center of all sin is, is I, and in, yes. in any philosophy, any perspective that, that begins with ourselves is inherently flawed, and we need to see that. That's a very important point, Mark, because yes. with Romanticism, people no longer said uh, what Thomas Aquinas or Calvin or Luther said, but I think... Yes. I feel. Yes. And that became determinative. They no longer felt that uh, they needed authority or superior knowledge to theirs. Their opinion, even if they knew nothing on the subject, became all important. Yes. But I believe that is changing by the grace of God. Well, thank you all for listening and God bless you.